Well, good morning. Turn, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're continuing in our study of this book. We're going to read uh, the first two verses. I'll be reading from New American Standard Version. First two verses of 1 Thessalonians 4. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as, you are actu- just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do just come into your presence. We pray that you would speak to our hearts as Paul turns from the history of this little meeting and his concern for them uh, to instructions from the Lord on how to please uh, the Lord and to please the Father. And so we pray that you would put in our hearts as we sang in that first song as a prayer uh, that some of these qualities that you want in our lives would would be uh, true of us and be our desire. So we pray. Speak to our hearts through your word, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul begins uh, this, this passage with the words, finally then, brethren, or finally therefore, brethren. Um, and what he's doing is he's beginning a second major section of the letter. Uh, he's saying, in light of what I've written before in chapters 1 to 3, I'm going to make some Uh, exhortations, some uh, teaching uh, for you to follow. So let's let's review what he had written previously. In chapter 1, Paul shared about the salvation of the Thessalonian believers, how they had turned to God from idols to serve God and to wait for the return of Christ. This salvation affected the way they lived their lives and was something they clearly and eagerly shared. And he tells them that and and encourages them. In chapter 2, Paul reminded them how Paul, Silas, and Timothy had brought God's message of salvation to them. They had proclaimed the gospel of God with real concern, sincerity, and lives that mirrored the truth, and how the Thessalonian believers had welcomed it as the very word of God and remained faithful despite suffering and persecution. And then in chapter 3, Paul shared his concern for their faith that in his enforced absence, Satan might have unsettled them through their suffering and lured them from remaining faithful to Christ. How he had sent Timothy to encourage and strengthen their faith and how Timothy's good report to Paul brought comfort and encouragement to him. And Paul's eager desire was to come see them again, and equip them by filling what was lacking in their knowledge and insight uh, of their faith. So now in chapters 4 and 5, Paul will begin doing that with some practical exhortations and teachings. The outline of of Thessalonians uh, 4, verses 1 to 12, is very, very uh, easy, uh, very straightforward. It's an exhortation first about general conduct, followed by two specific exhortations, sexual purity and brotherly love. So let's look at this uh, first section uh, of general conduct. He says then, 
Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. Notice the two verbs. Request is the word of a friend entreating a friend. And so Paul has talked about his care, his concern for them. Uh, he considers them brothers and sisters in Christ as friends. And he uses this word, says, I'm just trying to encourage you. The second word, urge uh, or exhort, sometimes translated beseech, has the idea of an authoritative plea. It's, it's less than a command, but it's still strong. Uh, Paul often used this word when he was moving from a doctrinal section to a practical section. So in Romans 12.1, he says, I urge, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Ephesians 4.1, uh, he does that as well. And notice it's in the Lord Jesus. This request and urging is in line with what the Lord Jesus wants them to do. So I'm urging you, I'm, I'm coming alongside as a friend, uh, encouraging you to do this, but I'm urging you to do this. There are some things the Lord Jesus wants in your life. And then he says, as you have received instruction from us, uh, he reminds them that some of what he's writing to them, they'll remember from when he was there and taught them, but he's going to fill it out more fully, uh, the instruction that he had given. The word used here is not the normal word for teaching, but a military command for instructions from a higher authority. And you'll see down in verse 2, he says, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. These aren't just Paul's recommendations. As he's going to teach this stuff, he wants them to know that, that these are what the Lord Jesus wants in their lives. And uh, he had given commands earlier, now he's, he's giving this, uh, this teaching, but he wants them to recognize uh, the authority of the Lord Jesus. And so he says, again in verse 1, how you ought to walk and please God. Walk is is Paul's favorite picture of the Christian life. We were in the book of Ephesians, if you remember, and he says, uh, beginning in, in chapter 4, that you walk worthy of the calling with which you're called. And then he says, don't walk like the Gentiles walk. And then he says, uh, walk in love. Then he says, walk as children of light. Then he says, walk wisely. All these are pictures of how Christians should act. And so he's saying, I'm going to talk to you about your Christian life. What should your Christian life look like? As you look in the mirror of the word, what should you be seeing reflected back from your life? And notice he says um, how you ought to walk and please God. And that word ought is must. It's the same word that's used in, in John 4 where it says it, Jesus must go through Samaria. It was necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria. These are truths that are must if you want to please God. If you want a life that pleases God, the next uh, several exhortations are things that have to be in your life because of who God is. And so um, he says... Uh, just as you actually do walk. You're, you guys are doing real well. He recognizes um, that they have, have grown, but they're young. There's some things missing in their faith, and he wants, while recognizing the progress they made, he wants to encourage them to go beyond that. You know, the Christian life is not a set of rules to be obeyed or a list of prohibit, prohibit, 
prohibitions to be avoided. It is the living out of a desire to please God because you love him. And that's the goal. I want to please God. Why? Because I love him. Look what he's done for me. I want my life to please God. And he says, listen, you guys have had a good start, but now he says that you excel still more. This practical exhortation is that they press on to greater experiencing of what they already were practicing to a limited degree. We are the last Sunday of October. On the first Sunday of January, have you grown? Have you grown? Do you know more about the Word of God today than you did the first Sunday of January? Are there areas of obedience in your life that are there to a greater degree than they were the first Sunday of January? Are there areas of service that you're involved in that were not there the first Sunday of January? And that's what Paul's saying. Are you growing? The Christian life cannot be static. It went, the minute it becomes static, it, you go in reverse. We saw that in the book of Hebrews. And so he says, listen, I want you, I know you're facing persecution, I know you're facing suffering, I know there's a great deal of opposition, but I don't want you, and, and you're doing real well because you're not pulling back, but I don't want you to just stay the same. I want you to progress. And he's going to talk about some of these areas where they need to progress. Verse two, uh, 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. A lot of times we talk about the will of God. We worry, what's the will of God for what school I should go to? What's the will of God? Who I should marry? What's the will of God? What job should I have? But, but Paul's very specific. He says, listen, here's what God's will for you is. He wants you to be sanctified. This word is a word that's connected with holiness. It means to be set apart for God because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ, to be set apart in the way you live for God. And he says that's what God wants. God wants your sanctification. It's the process where believers are conformed to the image of Christ in their daily experiences by proper response to the word of God and the spirit of God. God wants us to live holy lives. And we sang that first song, and, and that first song really was a prayer. Holiness, holiness, that is what I long for. Now we all sing it. Is that the beat of your heart? I want holiness in my life. And so God is going to um, take up some specific areas um, about holiness. And so this leads to the first area, which is the area of sexual purity. And it's going to be expressed by three uh, phrases that begin with the word that. So he says, verse, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The word for sexual immorality is the word pernia, from which we get the first half of the word pornography. It's a very broad word. It includes premarital sex. It, it uh, includes uh, extramarital sex. It includes homosexual sex. It includes any kind of sex that isn't 
between a man and a woman in the bonds of marriage. And he says Christians should abstain from that. It should not be part of their lives. Thessalonica was, was a city, it was a, it was a port city. Uh, it was a city marked by spiritual looseness. The Greek world, uh, sexual immorality was viewed with indifference or often had a favorable view of it. Every temple that you went to in the Greek world had temple prostitutes, and sexual immorality was part of their religious experience. So many of these people who had come to faith in Jesus Christ have grown up in a world where sexual immorality was was not a big deal. Now Paul's not like in 1 Corinthians where he's talking about a specific person and a specific sin, he's not really referencing any sin that, that he's pointing out here in, in Thessalonica. Rather, this is a preventative uh, instruction. If you want to please God, you must live a life separate from sexual immorality. Bottom line. In the next statement, Paul's going to emphasize this truth in a positive way. Um, in this passage, we're going to run into a, a several places where they're, they're interpreted different ways. Uh, none of the interpretations are contrary to the Word of God. Uh, all of them are found elsewhere in the Word of God. The question is, uh, what is he specifically saying here? And uh, some of these interpretations will, will show up in your Bible. We'll have Bibles here where uh, this next phrase will be interpreted, uh, will be phrased up to three different ways. And so we're explaining why that is, and I'll tell you which one I prefer, but if, if you prefer another one, if you read a commentary or whatever, and you say, um, there are good people on both sides. The key words and the ones that I've noted are um, the word possess and the word vessel. Um, the first one interprets this line instead of would know how to possess his own vessel. Uh, they would say that each of you um, learned to live with his own wife. And so they're, they're interpreting what it means possess and what does it mean uh, what this vessel is. And the way they come to this interpretation is the word possess in the Greek, in the classical Greek, had the idea of acquiring. And so they say, well, you don't acquire a body, you acquire a wife. And so uh, you go to First Peter chapter 4, verse 7, it it speaks of the wife as the weaker vessel. It's the same word, vessel. And so they say, they're saying, um, you acquire a wife and you live with her in a holy and honorable way. And uh, this is what Paul's saying here. And, and that, you know, lines up with um, Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 7, 9. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. And so they would say Paul's saying a wholesome marriage is God's antidote for sexual immorality. 
Another view is it, they would translate it and learn, to learn how to control his own body. Uh, this view points out that over time, words change their meaning. And while the word possess in the classical Greek had the idea of acquire, in Paul's day, according to some of the manuscripts of Paul's day, it had the word to gain mastery over. And while the word vessel is used of a wife in 1 Peter 4, 7, it says she's the weaker vessel, implying that the word vessel also is, is true of the husband. And twice in Scripture, in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 and 2 Timothy 2, 21, uh, the body is, uh, this word vessel is translated body. So this view says, listen, God wants his people to gain mastery over their body with its passions, to learn to deal with sexual temptations in ways that are holy and honorable, ways that are set apart to the Lord and recognized by others as worthy of respect. So it's, it's not marriage that's in view, but it's how you deal with sexual urges as an individual. I tend to think the second one is, is the right translation here. But there are good people on both sides. But if you pick up a different version of the Bible and you read it, wife there, you'll understand why it says wife instead of body. Okay? But Paul's saying, listen, you have to be free of sexual sin. One way is to learn what God's given us, and he's going to talk some more about that later, to help us in these areas. But we need to control these uh, passions. And so he goes on and says in verse 5, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. Again, if you take it as marriage, he's saying have a wholesome marriage. Not like the Gentiles run their marriages. No, have a wholesome marriage. If you take it in the second way, he's saying, listen, the Gentiles live controlled by their passions. God hasn't given us that to live that way. We know God. The Spirit of God indwells us, and he gives us power to live in, in a different way. In Philippians 3.19, Paul describes unbelievers as those whose God is their appetite. They are controlled by uh, their passions, their desires. We are not to live that way. We are to live under the, the authority of the Spirit of God, and in the power of the Spirit of God, and, and live sanctified lives to God. The third phrase, again, has two interpretations. Um, here in, in verse um, 6, and that no man, you see the word that there again, that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Uh, the key words are defraud or wrong a brother and the word matter. Um, the one view of interpreting this is um, that you do not transgress and treat your brother in business dealings. So they see the first couple verses dealing with sexual immorality, this verse dealing with... Uh, cheating people in business, in business transactions. And you say, well, where, they, where did they get that? Well, that word wrong, the noun form is covetousness. 
And the word matter is a word that's used in commercial dealings. Um, but in the Ten Commandments, the Tenth Commandment is thou shalt not covet, and one of the things you don't covet is your neighbor's wife. Um, and uh, they would also say, you know, Thessalonica was a commercial center, and the two outstanding vices of the pagan world were sexual immorality and commercial dishonesty. And so they see Paul dealing with both. The second view, more widely held, sees that this statement continues the same theme on sexual immorality. Do not go beyond what is proper and wrong your brother, defraud your brother. The two previous verses are based on the importance of sexual purity for the sake of the Christian himself. Here Paul's appeal is the effect of the act on other people. It wrongs the other person involved, uh, involving him or her in behavior contrary to God's will. It wrongs the one they'll eventually marry. It hurts uh, their family. Sexual sins have in them the potential uh, for um, social complications. And so Paul, I, I think the second one is better here. Paul's looking at, at sexual immorality. He says, listen, God says you cannot live that way. You must be sexually pure. And he says, listen, the way you do it is you control, you allow the Spirit of God to help you to control your body so that you live a life that's separated to God and is, is blameless in this area. And you keep in mind that if you don't live that way, you're going to hurt a lot of people. And then he gives us some reasons beyond that. Um, verse 6, that no man transgress to fraud his brother in matter because the Lord is of the avenger in all these things. Um, the Lord Jesus is the avenger in all these things. God takes a special interest in this area. Hebrews 13.4, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Paul goes on and says, the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as I told you before and solemnly warned you. Lord Jesus said, this is an area where God takes special attention. The marriage is to be a display of Christ in the church. God takes special attention. God avenges it. Probably because of the social complications, he wants his people to know, you don't have to take revenge. God will deal with this. Some speakers say, you know, at the judgment seat of Christ, well, it's mainly rewards. Um, God talks about wiping away all tears, and, and some feel that this is an area that, that is going to come up, and God is going to deal with it if he doesn't deal with it in this life. Um, I remember uh, talking to a, a leader from California, and they had a problem with uh, an, older, an older elder had divorced his wife and and a younger woman in the meeting had divorced her husband, and they had run off together. And then, lo and behold, it happened over here about six months later. And then, lo and behold, it happened again over here. And after the, the couple got married, 
He died of a massive heart attack before they could get into the car to go on their honeymoon. And the guy said, it stopped happening. God's serious about this area. And Paul says, I'm solemnly warning you. You need to be sexually pure. Then he goes on. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Sexual impurity is not in harmony with God's calling. God says, I want you to live uh, a holy life. This word not is in the emphatic position. God has not called you this way. God wants you to live a holy life. It, impurity frustrates God's purpose in your life. A holy life demonstrates God's supernatural power at working uh, to overcome what is natural and glorifies God. And then he says, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Sexual purity is simply a practical application of God's revelation um, concerning his judgment of sin and his call to holiness. To reject this instruction is not rejecting what men say, but what God has said. And, more, and then Paul goes on, he says, and it's the God who's provided so that you can have victory in this. He's giving you his Holy Spirit to indwell you. He's giving you all the provision you need to have victory in this area, and you're rejecting him. What are some practical applications here? First of all, uh, let me say, if you're of dating age, you should walk through this passage. Seriously, spend some time in it. If you have children coming up on dating age, you should walk your children through this passage so that they understand exactly what God says about sexual immorality. Secondly, um, thinking of dating kids of dating age, we need to help them set boundaries. Um, one nice way is uh, our world wants, has communicated the message, if you're 12, even 9, 10 today, and you don't have, uh, if you're not singled out with someone else, one-on-one, -on -one, there's something wrong. There's something good about group dating. Learning in a group to social interact. Being in a group. Uh, you can help them. Say, I dated uh, the daughter of a man, and uh, his rules were simply this. Where are you going? What are you going to do? How long is it going to take? And that's set when you'd be back. Well, we're going to go out to dinner and go to a concert and then have coffee afterwards. Okay, you're leaving here. It's 5.15. Be at the restaurant at 5.30. How long does it take to eat? Well, when's the concert start? Seven. When's it over? Nine. How long does it take to get somewhere to have coffee? Oh, about ten minutes. How long does it take to have coffee? About a half hour. Okay, I'll see you here at eleven. He set boundaries. Don't be putting in lots of idle time. I know another man who just said to his kids, when you come in, I'm not going to say a curfew, but when you come in, if I'm in bed, you must come and wake me before you go to bed. 
which had a real damper on how late they stayed out. <laughs> be willing to say no and be the bad guy. One of the things in our home was sleepovers. We said, no, we're not going to do sleepovers. That, that was our choice. Every family has their own choices. And I can remember Gwen going to some sleepovers, and I would come pick her up 10 o'clock. Or one time I was at a hotel, and after they swam and had all that, and after they had cake, I, you call me, I'll come pick you up. Because that, that was our rule. And her kids say, boy, your mom and dad, they're really kind of something else, aren't they? <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. In fact, later, she wore it as a badge of honor. Help against peer pressure. I, I wish I could share with you some of the studies that have been done on peer pressure showing uh, I mean, they did one study where they had 30 people. Only three were really in the study. All the others were fill-ins. And the first 15 people were part of it. And they had two blocks that they would move up and down. And they could get it an inch. And you had to say, is it even or one lower than the other? And they could get it an inch. And 15 people would say they're even. And they had them all wired up. And the, the 16th guy was under. He was sweating. His breathing was ragged. And he would say, even. Why? Peer pressure. Help with peer pressure. One way of doing that is code words or code phrases. So if, the, if your child's out and they're dating and suddenly they say, hey, let's get some ice cream and, and go over to Bob's house for a little while. Well, I've got to call my mom and dad. And maybe your code word's banana. And uh, so you say, well, we're going to go out for ice cream. Maybe I'll get a banana split. Well, hearing that word, I know what she wants me to say is no. See, she doesn't want to be the bad person, but having the code phrase, I can now say no, put John on the phone. John, no, not going to happen. She's, she needs to come home. Do I need to come get her? It, it helps against peer pressure. The last one is promise rings. Promise ring is a ring that you give a little girl, I think we gave to Gwen when she's about 12. And it was a ring that she took off when she put her wedding ring on. And it reminded her that she was promising the Lord Jesus to be pure on the day of her wedding. I was on the East Coast shortly after this happened, uh, having a week of meetings. And on Sunday they wanted me to speak, and it was this passage. And so I shared about promise rings and, and that that was a good thing. And on Wednesday, as I was taking the night meetings, the the couple that was in charge of the youth group came up and said, uh, hey, we want to just share something with you. We have two girls who have come into our youth group. They're not in the meeting, and they've gotten saved, but they were sexually active, and that just devastated them. And I said, I'm sorry, what, what did you do? And they said, well, what we did was remind them that probably a lot of these people in Thessalonica hearing this are saying, oops. And, and Paul's reminder is, you're a new creature in Christ. And as a Christian, you can say, all right, God, forgive the past. Let's put a marker. This is a new day. And he said, we shared that with those girls. And my wife and I went out and bought them promise rings. And I said, what a, what a wise guy he was. But we live 
in a pagan world. And we need to help our young people understand the truth of this. Well, um, real quickly, the next section's on brotherly love. Verse 9, now as to love of the brethren, you have no need anyone write to you, for yourselves are taught of God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. Paul says, listen, uh, the next area that's a must of the Christian life, if you want to please God is brotherly love. Lord Jesus commanded us to love one another just as he loved us. Unlike sexual Immorality, which is a prohibition, something we're to avoid, this is a practice we're to cultivate. Um, and he says, you know, some truths you come through teaching, but some truths God just teaches you uh, himself. And this is one of those truths that you just, just naturally understand, that when he brings you into the body of Christ, you're to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And when you love your brothers and sisters in Christ... Um, and he says, I know you're doing this because your love spreads beyond Thessalonica to all Macedonia. You're, you're, you're loving uh, all the believers in different places in Macedonia. But when you do that, it, it changes how you should live. And so he's going to give some practical aspects of how to live in brotherly love. My, my wife and I picked up a stray cat uh, just a couple nights ago and uh, a kitten and so we have it in our home, and uh, she's part of our home, but she's got to learn some things. You, you don't try to nurse off the dog. He don't like it. Um, it offends him. You do not go to the bathroom on the carpet. We have a box for you for that. It offends my wife. Well, there are things that offend Christians, that hurt other Christians. And we're young, but... These are things we need to learn. And so Paul gives us uh, several of these. Uh, he says, uh, but we urge you, brethren, at the end of verse 10, to excel still more. These are areas, I know you're doing pretty good. I know you love. But again, this is an area where you need to excel. You need to grow. And so here's some areas you need to grow. Make it your ambition to live a quiet life. Uh, this is the idea of a calm, peaceful life, a balanced outlook on life. The opposite is a restless, unsettled, fanatical behavior. Some think that because they were waiting, eagerly waiting for Jesus Christ to come from heaven, some people had fallen into what's called perusia uh, uh, hysteria, the coming of Christ hysteria. Uh, we saw it in 1988 when there were 88 reasons. That some of you weren't even alive probably then, but... Um, where this guy wrote 88 Reasons Why Jesus Christ is Coming on 88, was on TV, and, and people began to talk about it. And some people quit their jobs, gave away their bank accounts, gave away their possessions, and sat down to wait for the Lord Jesus to come. Well, he didn't come, because no man knows. You say, well, you learn from that. Well, just, what, six, seven years ago? There's a guy who owned a bunch of radio stations said, Jesus Christ is coming, and we're going to put together a whole bunch of big buses. We want you to quit your job. Come get on the bus. We're going to go all over the U.S., share the gospel, come back uh, somewhere, uh, Minneapolis or somewhere, and be here in time for when the Lord comes. So they quit their jobs. They got on the buses. They went all over sharing the gospel. Not a bad thing. But he didn't come. 
And he says, listen, I want you to have a, a sober approach to life, a calm settled. There's always some teacher. There's always some truth. There's always some thing that comes down the pipe. And a whole bunch of Christians get really excited about it, and it dies. But while they're excited about it, there's an arrogance that comes. There's a division that comes. I remember having a teacher in Emmaus, and he said, if you knew Jesus Christ was coming on Friday, how would you live this week? I said, well, how would you live? He said, I wouldn't change a thing. Because God wants me to go to work. God wants me to do these things. He said, if I'm not living the way, if he's coming on Friday, if I'm not living that way, I'm living wrong. But he doesn't want you to run off frantically. No, make it your ambition to have a calm, peaceful life. Mind your own business, he says. Um, be engaged in your own activities. In 2 Thessalonians 3.11, he'll say, do not be a busybody. Someone has said, do not have a meddlesome spirit. I worked a job one time, and there was a guy, he wasn't a supervisor, but he would come around and tell everybody what they were doing wrong with their job. And, and, and he would tell you, you ought to do it this way. And you know what happened? The boss didn't fire him, but the boss always gave him a job that was away from everybody else. <laughs> and some Christians are that way. They come around and they want to meddle in everybody else's life. No, mind your own business. You make sure you're doing what you should be doing. And then he says, work with your own hands. The Greeks despise manual labor, but God dignifies it. Probably most of the Thessalonians were working class people. And this is a counterbalance to being overly restful. You, you know, you work with your own hands. You, you fulfill your daily um, work. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone's not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Believers are not to be loafers. Their excitement about the future must not keep them from their daily work. Well, what's the purpose of this exhortation? A good testimony to the outsiders. These actions would uh, cause no offense. He says, verse 12, so that you will behave properly towards outsiders. They were conducting themselves in an honorable fashion. Their example would have an impact on those outside the faith who might not understand the blessings of the gospel but would be able to appreciate the difference between order and confusion, between idleness and diligence in believers' lives. And those lives would glorify God. And then he says, and not be in any need. This exhortation emphasizes personal responsibility so that believers are not wrongly imposing on the generosity of other believers. And so I put up these verses in Galatians. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens, and thereby, thereby fulfill the law of Christ, for each one will bear his own load. The first verse, the word burden, is a burden that's too heavy for one person to bear. Someone goes through a, they lose their job. And, and they're going through a difficult time. You rally around. Someone has a terrible illness and, and, and there's a problem there. You rally around. The second verse 
the, the load or the burden is the normal responsibilities of life. And people are to be responsible for their own responsibilities. You come when there's a need that's too big. You take personal responsibility for the things that you should be responsible for. And so Paul says, listen, I want you to show brotherly love. When there's a need that's too great, rally round. When someone is trying to be a loafer or idle, you say, get to work. You need to carry your load. And so Paul says, listen, these are two musts. Sexual purity, it's a must. Pray for one another. Pray for our youth group. Pray for our college and career. Pray that they find good spouses. But pray that they learn to control uh, these urges uh, with the power of the Spirit of God. Pray for those that fall in these areas and the hurt that happens that God would send healing to those families. Let's love one another so that the world says they live differently. But you know, I kind of like what they're doing. Father, we, we just come. These are big areas in our world today. Um, help us to be pure. Help us not to be selfish. Help us not to be busybodies. Help us to, to love our brothers and sisters the way Christ loved us. And may the world see a difference in the lives of the believers of this place and every other place here in Waterloo that preaches your word. Because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.